Hi, it's Bob Safian. You've been hearing me as the host of Rapid Response in this feed for a few years now with short newsy interviews alongside the deeper dives of Masters of Scale. Well, I'm excited to share that Rapid Response is expanding into its own feed. We'll be putting out shows twice a week, focusing on the urgent issues that business leaders are dealing with in real time. So search for Rapid Response in your podcast player and subscribe to make sure you get all our episodes. I'll see you on the other side. Safe is a very questionable notion these days in Gaza. The first week, our team was receiving horrible messages of people who are trapped in basements. They were asking uh, to send people to take them out. We were looking for ways to make that happen and we could not. We had some tragedies in the families of our staff. Uh, one lost his wife, another one uh, was wounded with a child. Emotions are running very high in our team in Palestine and across the region. That's Arno Kama, the Middle East Regional Director for Mercy Corps, the humanitarian organization that provides aid to people in need in the most dire spots around the world. That includes the Gaza Strip, which offered a fragile life for residents before the latest round of conflict erupted and now has become a full-blown crisis. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk to Arnaud because he has a team on the ground in Gaza who he's trying both to protect and to leverage to help others. Mercy Corps CEO Jada McKenna has been on this show twice before to talk about the Ukrainian refugee crisis after Russia's invasion, and earlier this year to talk about a deadly earthquake in Syria and Turkey. Arnaud comes to us from on the ground in the Middle East, and in fact has shared some direct recordings from teammates inside Gaza itself. These recordings have been kept anonymous to protect their safety. The messages from Arnaud and his team are about hope and fear, resilience and perseverance, and what crisis management means in the most extreme situation. Hi, listeners. It's Erica Flynn, VP of Alliances and Audience Development at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. My day-to-day -day consists of nonstop communication, not only with my immediate team, but with our current partner relationships and with incoming leads from possible future partners, which is why I rely on the ease of Grammarly to keep my communication clear and efficient. One confusing email can turn into several confused replies, which can turn into an unexpected meeting which no one wants, needs, or has time for. Having Grammarly on hand as my trusted AI writing partner not only streamlines my extensive to-do list, it minimizes miscommunication by quickly and efficiently synthesizing information and carefully curating tailor-made responses to specific groups. In fact, companies that use Grammarly to communicate can save 19 days per year per employee. Grammarly eases the writing process, it's a writing partner from the blank page to the last word typed before hitting send. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. I'm Bob Safian. I'm here with Arnaud Kima, the Middle East Regional Director for Mercy Corps. Arnaud's coming to us from Amman, Jordan, as I ask my questions from New York. Ramon, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So this is a, a very tense time in the Middle East, although tension is not unusual for the region or for you. You've been working there for several years. You previously worked 
in South Sudan, in Afghanistan, many challenging locations. With Hamas's attack on Israel on October 7th and the subsequent Israeli action in the Gaza Strip, how does the situation today compare to other crises that you've experienced? There was maybe a, a form of pattern around Gaza over the past 10 years. Uh, but what we are looking at today is, is completely out of that pattern. And it's of a magnitude in terms of the geopolitical rippling effects and consequences that I, I've never seen before. So uh, it's a very defining time for the region and I think for a, a, a big part of the world. You're usually based in Beirut, and you relocated to Jordan. The first idea is to uh, put people who, uh, who are not needed uh, in a safer place, right? But the other part is once you've done it, you're free to, to go about your job with the team that is on the ground. So if you know you're going to, to have to probably evacuate at some point, uh, you'd rather do it earlier rather than later. At the end of the first week of this crisis, uh, I went to talk with our country director uh, in Beirut for our weekly checkup. And then we saw that the, there was a distinct possibility for things to uh, spill over in Lebanon that would have an impact on our ability to communicate and, uh, and to manage our team. So we thought, OK, let's do it. And by the end of the afternoon, I was gone, actually. And so you have you done this before where you have had to relocate so quickly? Maybe 20 years ago uh, in, a, in a job in Liberia, I had to evacuate twice in the first week and second time was in the middle of a, a pitch battle. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not seeking this kind of situation, but uh, unfortunately it happens and you'd rather do it in an ordered fashion rather than uh, uh, too late. So you relocate so that you can continue to stay in best contact with your team. You have team members in Gaza. What are conditions like there now? All I know is from the daily like trickle of information we managed to get from the team on the ground. In the first week, we are trying to have a, a daily headcount that I did not get at the end of every day. And I, I ended up asking, why am I not getting this? Because I need to know every day I start uh, the status of our team. And it's because we are trying to get a lot of information about their whereabouts, how they're feeling, etc. And it's too much. And basically, they don't respond. So we decided to have two tiers of check-in every day. Uh, one where we just ask them if they are fine and where they are in the WhatsApp questionnaires. And then for the more complex uh, interaction, we, we have a, a different channel that we can use at will. How many people do you have in Gaza? Are they all safe? Uh, safe is a very uh, uh, questionable notion these days in Gaza, but we're about 70 staff plus their families, all of them had to relocate over the past three weeks. Some, uh, we had to look for accommodation for them at a time where it's very difficult. People were basically waiting for us to secure uh, a location for them in the south because they were stuck in the northern part, uh, which has become increasingly uh, dangerous. We, we had some tragedies in the families of our staff. Uh, one lost his wife, another one uh, was wounded with a child, but other had relatives uh, wounded. When you hear that a team member's wife has, has been killed, like what, what can you do? It's actually someone I know. So we connected with him remotely, providing uh, psychological support and different form of uh, messages and acknowledgement, uh, which is pretty much the extent of what we can do right now. 
we are currently have a, a core team of a few people who are trying to supply food, finding water and, and mattress or, or things like that for the, the rest of the team, because basically that's the first order of business that they can be uh, stable uh, and have their daily needs uh, covered. But yeah, it's what we can do at this moment is very limited. Can you paint a picture for us as far as you know, like what the conditions were like there before October 7th and then what they're like there for them now? So before that, we had uh, a very fragile uh, society which has developed ways to be uh, semi-functional in the context of this long-standing blockade for instance, the telecom infrastructure had not been upgraded. So I think it was still uh, 2G or 3G. Like We were helping farmers to develop uh, agriculture and setting up like irrigation in the south, especially. We also had a great program called Gaza Sky Geeks. The immense potential, very uh, tech-savvy uh, young people. So we were uh, training them, helping them understand how what platform existed. I was impressed by how eager and professional they were, like looking for jobs in Australia or in the Gulf, doing some form of uh, content uh, production or coding. And uh, so those were the days before, basically. It was far from perfect, but there was a a sense of uh, of building things. This whole momentum is obviously uh, gone. The the team on the ground, we will probably organize them into a new response team as soon as we can get uh, aid to come from the border. That's not their skill set, but... I understand that they are eager to just like get going. But we are starting from a, a level of destruction that is absolutely unprecedented, even in Gaza. I know some aid has been allowed in, some trucks, but well below certainly what the UN was sending in before. Does that mean for an organization like Mercy Corps, can you get anything into Gaza? The small trucks, that, uh, like convoys that came through, it's just a drop in an ocean of needs. They could not organize proper distributions. There were a mass of people showing up and that become completely unsafe. I was talking with colleagues with this team on the ground. They were like, don't say that as a good news because this is a, a patch, a, a band-aid. The last two nights, there were a lot of, uh, of airstrikes. So people were like, can we at least have this stop? The food will, will reappear at some point, uh, of course. But for people, their first concern is physically uh, stop in these uh, strikes. Now, what can come in? At this moment, nothing uh, or very little. We have sent staff in Egypt to uh, establish connections with the local authorities and other NGOs to prepare for a steady pipeline of aid uh, as soon as there is a mechanism put in place. NGOs are often not very consulted in the first stage of this negotiation, but we are pushing for that. We know what we will need, and that's very different from what diplomats uh, discuss. As I'm, I'm listening to you and sort of hearing your tone, it's like you're, you're trying to stay patient and you're trying to stay sort of upbeat. And at the same time, you're frustrated and you don't really have control over the things you wish you could do. I think this crisis actually are an exercise in uh, what agency you have. Even in natural disaster, you have often an amount of needs that you cannot cover. And so you, you need to bring what you can and do your best. At this level, we are in a critical case where we cannot even start responding. There's clearly a lot of energy invested in making it possible. And hopefully this will come in the coming days. Yeah. And your team on the ground there, what are their moods like? I mean, it sounds like some people want to 
contribute and help. There may be other people who are like, I just want to hide. You're describing exactly what I was uh, uh, hearing today. Some are completely focused on taking care of their families, and so they will not be available to contribute to the response. Uh, others are like, okay, what can I do today? Find me something to, to be useful, please. The first days, we were really concerned that we would have a complete blackout out of uh, power, out of internet or uh, telephone. We were topping up their credit on their phone uh, with the telecom company, but the quality of the connection with Gaza has actually decreased. And, and I'm very afraid that if this trend continues, it will have to increasingly trust them to, to function by themselves because we won't be able to interact as much. Arnaud is juggling so many things, trying to support those in harm's way while also making plans for an uncertain future. After the break, we'll hear how he's modeling resilience and discipline for his colleagues. But first, we have a voice memo from inside Gaza from one of the Mercy Corps team members. The voice memo is in Arabic. The translation you'll hear is read by an AI, Pi. We went to buy bread today. We now go out food shopping every two, three days. I live in northern Gaza, but had to leave my home and go to the southern part. We are staying in a family house that is hosting 20 people in a very small apartment. And I consider ourselves lucky because other apartments of the same size are hosting up to 50, 60 people, like in 90 or 100 meter apartments. We went to another area, which is a refugee camp, to find a bakery. When we arrived, we found out that the bakery was bombed. We went to another area, we found the bakery, and there is a long line of about 300 people waiting for their turn to get bread. The area has been targeted previously by airstrikes. It was not safe to wait. Crowds of people have been targeted many times. Yesterday, they targeted a food market that was full of people. I went back to the area we were staying in to buy some groceries. In the store, we continually heard the explosion of the airstrikes. These explosions have become a normal thing to hear. Hey, listeners, it's Jodine Dorsey, the VP of Live Events at Wait What, the company behind Masters of Scale. I am constantly tasked with reaching out to teams across a wide spectrum of professions and the vastly different personalities that go with them. Grammarly helps me quickly shift tones to better communicate what I want to say and saves me valuable time in the process. Our upcoming Masters of Scale Summit event features top-tier speakers from CEOs to founders to political leaders. Grammarly's ability to produce on-brand writing helps me properly prepare for each and every thought leader I interact with on stage. It lets me generate the most exciting specialized content for our audience. In fact, teams that use Grammarly report 66% less time spent editing marketing content, which I've seen firsthand with my summit team. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Before the break, we heard Mercy Corps Middle East Regional Director Arnaud Kamen outline what his team members inside Gaza are facing, plus some direct insights from one of them. Now Arnaud shares how the conflict is impacting Mercy Corps' efforts in the West Bank, Lebanon, and elsewhere. His lessons about maintaining calm and discipline in a crisis are particularly instructive. Plus, another voice memo from inside Gaza. And you oversee this team also in the West Bank. Are things 
operational they are? Like, what are the conditions now in the West Bank? So uh, we, we suspended the first few days. We have a large program uh, for youth, which is currently moving online because we have some centers for youth and these centers are not safe anymore. There are some military operations taking place and the tension is extremely high. So uh, some of our staff are really afraid of going out of their home in some uh, neighborhoods. We are trying to reprogram the things we cannot do in Gaza to to do it um, to some extent in uh, the West Bank, but we are working at a, a lower capacity. And with all this going on, like how do you think about the impact on your other regional programs? Let, let's start with Lebanon. We have uh, last count was like 20,000 people displaced from the south um, because of the, the shedding across the border. So our team went there last week. They are going back tomorrow if the security allows to see how we can start distributing uh, goods. In Lebanon is at the bottom of a terrible economical crisis. This month is the harvest season for olives. If this lasts too long, they will miss a major source of income for many of these families. So we will also need to look for ways to supplement that. Uh, Yes, we have programs across the region, and it's taken a a huge chunk of my time as well. Whenever, hopefully not too long, but whenever things calm down in Gaza, it's going to be a mess, right? I mean, the needs are going to be off the charts. There will not be enough support for several years to come to go back to a, a level of normal. I mean, we are, of course, starting with the immediate needs that are very urgent and very critical. But behind that, there will be a, an absolute need for reconstruction uh, that will be large scale. When there's a natural disaster, you know, you can be angry, but there's no one to get angry at. When there are more political things, you know, the frustration can go in other directions. Like. How do you stay neutral in situations like this? People have had a hard time understanding what's the posture of a humanitarian in this kind of context. The neutrality and partiality that you're talking about, we are born out of these impossible situations to create a space for something else than violence. And thank God for that, because today uh, there are people that are concerned with humanity uh, and with helping. They're not concerned with who is at fault, who is violent, who is legitimate. No, our question is who is humane and who needs help. And and that should be respected by everybody. And what do you do personally with your own like frustration or anger or, you know, disappointment in times like this? Like, how do you manage those things? Because it must get to you sometimes. I studied history, so I have a very, I have a fascination for the complexity of human uh, situations. Um, and I try to stick to that approach, like a scientific one, that there is the empathy and uh, the emotional part about the human response. But I know that it's extremely dangerous to fall into any of the logics that are at play there. It requires a lot of discipline because people keep asking you to take side. And I absolutely have no... I have no other desire than to take side for the team I have on the ground that we need to support and the people who are in need of aid. Uh, And I guess that leads sometimes to very short conversations because I cannot continue them. And that's just uh, the nature of this job. You have different types of organizations. Some are uh, advocacy organizations whose job is to be vocal and to bring a very strong point of view. I'm working for an operational organization, one that is driven by an an imperative to deliver. So 
we have to discipline ourselves to preserve this ability to deliver whatever we think about it. And I can tell you, emotions are running very high uh, in our team in Palestine and across the region. And I have to reassure them that this is all for a good reason. Uh, it's because eventually at the end, we'll be able to mount a proper response. Mm. And, and the emotions are running high in part because they want to do something and they can't. Because people want to speak up, to take a very strong stand. And I totally respect that. It's just that if we start engaging with this we might be tagged with one side of the story and we cannot afford that. We, we cannot. Uh, that's, that's just as simple as that. And for you personally, do you like, do you meditate? Do you exercise? What does it take to sort of get yourself to be able to stay neutral and keep those around you calm? In the normal time, I would say yes to exercise meditation, but these past three weeks have been a nonstop tunnel of work. So there is no spare time from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed. And I know that it's the case for uh, dozens, if not hundreds of people around this uh, team. I'm blessed with a, a group of people I'm interacting with uh, every hour that I have a deep respect for and I can bounce off ideas and, and opinions and thoughts and emotions and they do the same. And we, we manage to to basically have some form of support, the team dynamic is probably what keeps me going. Here's an inside view of what one of those team members in Gaza is facing. We're withholding their name to protect their safety. What you guys are seeing on social media and on TVs is actually 2% of the reality. So know that we're dying here. Um, if we're not dead physically, we're dead inside. Now we return to Arnaud. What are your hardest decisions right now? The decisions that are related to staff. So any word that you might say that might endanger them, or if we have a critical incident with a, a family member, what can we do? The first week, uh, our team was receiving horrible messages of people who are trapped in basements, and they were asking uh, to send people to take them out. And we were looking for ways to make that happen, and we could not. So those are the tough things. They're not decisions in themselves, but they are like quandaries where you're like, okay, how can we still be useful and functional in spite of our incapacity? For listeners to this, businesses, individuals, if they want to help in this tough time, what can they do? I mean, the obvious one is to contribute to our core fund. This is extremely precious money this uh, response in Egypt or well, the first distribution are going to take place in Lebanon based on these uh, donations. And then we are new to Egypt. So if there is any partnership we can have with a, a company that is set up there that we can speed up your procurement process or increase your capacity. And we've had good partnership with the uh, companies before. When your team listens to this, what do you want them to take away? That we care for them and that we will act and operate very soon on the ground. On a purely philosophical level, I think what is at stake is some form of humanity. I, I cannot fathom the consequences of this escalating further, because if it was the case, we would look into a, a crisis that would be bigger than anybody has seen uh, in our age. Well, Arno, this has been great that you're willing to share all this with us. Thanks for your efforts, for your calm, and for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity.
Listening to Arno, you can hear the importance of both planning in advance and reacting swiftly in the moment when it comes to managing crisis. There's only so much in your control, but whatever is in your control has to be considered, tested, and at times confronted. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. In the end, helping others can help guide you in your choices and form the bedrock for a better future. I'm Bob Safian. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Jeff Berman, CEO of Wait What and co-host of the Masters of Scale podcast. Like many of you, my to-do list changes by the minute. Whether I'm working with partners or hashing out legal documents or brainstorming with our team, there is never a shortage of tasks that require attention and constant communication. Like Masters of Scale co-host Reid Hoffman, I know artificial intelligence is a huge part of our future. And Grammarly is an enterprising leader in AI. With Grammarly, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks. It's like having a collaborator for my writing, helping me generate better first drafts and tailoring messages to our specific audiences. It's not only a superior AI tool, it is a safe AI tool. And as a CEO, security is always top of mind. Grammarly has 14 years of experience and a business model that never sells our data. Security has been a priority since day one and continues to be integral to Grammarly's values today. Join me and over 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly to work faster, hit their goals, and keep their data secure. Visit Grammarly.com to learn more. That's Grammarly.com. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. I'm Bob Safian, your host and Masters of Scale's editor-at-large. Our executive producer is Chris McLeod. Our producers are Chris Gauthier, Adam Skuse, Alex Morris, Tucker Ligurski, and Masha Makotonina. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music and sound design by Eduardo Rivera, Ryan Holiday, Hayes Holiday, and Nate Kinsella. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Stephen Wells, Andrew Nault, Liam Jenkins, and Timothy Lou Lee. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli and Brian Pugh. Our CEO and chairman of the board is Jeff Berman. Wait What was co-founded by June Cohen and Darren Triff. Special thanks to Jodine Dorsey, Alfonso Bravo, Tim Cronin, Erica Flynn, Sarah Tartar, Katie Blazing, Marielle Carricker, Chineme Ozuquena, Colin Howarth, Brandon Klein, Sammy Aputa, Kelsey Saison, Luisa Velez, Nikki Williams, and Justin Winslow. Visit mastersofscale.com to find the transcript for this episode and to subscribe to our email newsletter.